This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. What we're discussing the entire seminar series is training center churches. And you might have heard that phrase before, perhaps somewhere in your going through Adventism, you've heard that phrase pop up. But today we want to start off with a, in fact, the entire seminar is going to have a track to it. It's going to have an arc, okay? We're going to develop from the more uh, philosophical, theological framework to the practical nuts and bolts, how do I take this home, okay? Because we're going to start wide and go down the funnel until we land it at home and say, ah, that makes sense. I have a picture in my mind. I can help on the ground in my local church, okay? So, Before we get started, of course, with any study of God's word, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to be off to the races, okay? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this opportunity that you give us to come together as your people to study your word and to understand better why you want us to do what you you want us to do and how, more importantly, to do it faithfully. Bless us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the very first thing, this, this particular session is entitled, Who Fed the 5,000? Who Fed the 5,000? That's in a reference to something we're going to get to in the middle of our discourse today. But I'm going to begin even broader. Let's go to the book of Revelation. Go to the book of Revelation. We're going to start in chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. I'm assuming a relative familiarity with the Bible, the books of the Bible, and some of the themes within each book. So when I say, when you go to Revelation 4 and 5, you should have a picture in your mind of what's already there. So I don't have to explain everything from the grassroots, right? But just a quick overview, Revelation 4, John is told to come up into heaven and he would be shown things, right? And he sees the throne of God, you see the seven spirits of God, you see the four living creatures, you see the 24 elders, and basically this is God's command center of heaven, and there is the God himself enthroned in the middle and all the other beings around him in his throne room. And all the attention in most of the discourses that we find on Revelation 4 and 5 are on those very entities. You have God the Father on the throne, the Holy Spirit as the seven lamps, you know, the seven spirits of God. You have the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and you've probably heard sermons on each of those entities. Each of those beings has had seminars and lectures, workshops. They're the main focus. But I want to pan the picture out because all of that is centrally focused right around the throne. But what I want to show is right there in Revelation 5, there's a reference to another group of beings that we often lose track of when we're looking so closely at the 24 elders and four living creatures and, of course, the three members of the Godhead. After Christ comes into the picture in Revelation chapter 5, everything focuses around him as well, and songs are sung, and we go to verse 11. This is what I want to draw your attention to today. Then I looked and heard the voice of many, what? Angels. Okay. Now, so far, we, we know that there's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's the three members of the Godhead. Then you have the four living creatures, the 24 elders. Everything is numbered. And then it gets to the angels, and it just says there are many. Now, that's not all that it says. It's about to give us a number two. But I want you to see this. I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was what? 10,000 times 
Does anyone know what 10,000 times 10,000 is? 100 million. But that's not all. And what? And thousands and thousands. There's three members of the Godhead, four living creatures, 24 elders. We get all the focus on them. But apparently those, that small group of individuals is completely surrounded by this enormous sea of unnamed angels. A hundred, I mean, if we're going to take that literally, which I don't know if it's literal, but it's a whole lot. Even if it's not a literal hundred plus million, it's big enough that it was represented by a number of 10,000 times 10,000 plus thousands of thousands. It's huge. The vast majority of heaven's population is not constituted by the members of the Godhead, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders. Heaven is populated by a sea of angels. Okay? I want that picture in your head. Now, what is the job description of an angel? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. In discussing the supremacy of Christ over created beings, Paul here, I believe, in Hebrews chapter 1, talks about his relation to the angels and how he's higher than the angels. But in describing Christ's supremacy over the angels, he mentions the job description of angels. We find this in verse 14. He asks rhetorically about the angels, are they not all, what? Ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. So there's a hundred million, let's just say, plus angels in heaven, and apparently, according to scripture, how many of them are ministering for the lost? All of them. All of them. And this is not to take anything away from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Nothing away from the four leaders. Nothing away from the 24 elders. But there's a particular role that the angel hosts in heaven are supposed to play in God's government. They are the foot soldiers. They are the go get them. They're the ones working. Not that the other ones aren't, but they have a specific task in the plan of salvation. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 28. Let's flesh this out a little bit. Genesis chapter 28. This is the dream that Jacob has as he lays his head down on that stone. And what does he see in verse uh, 12? As he laid his head on the stone in verse 11 to lay down to sleep in that place, we find in verse 12, then he dreamed and behold, a what? Ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to where? Heaven. There's a ladder from earth to heaven. And the what? You got to be with me, folks. And the what? Angels of God were ascending, that means going up, and descending, that means coming down, on it. So he saw this vision with his ladder, and the angels are up, angels are down, angels are up. It's a super highway for angels. And that was the whole dream. And if I'm not mistaken, that's the last reference we see to this ladder almost in the entire Bible until we go to the Gospel of John. And let us go there very quickly. In John chapter 1, Jesus is beginning his ministry and collecting his very first disciples. 
And we're going to spend a little bit more time here than the other text. We're going to get a little bit more context just because it's fascinating. I go to verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Which is a great thing. All the arguing in the world is probably not going to win someone over. Just let them experience it. Let them see for themselves. Show them in the world. You know? anyway. So he says, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, this is one of the least sung miracles of Christ's ministry. The ability to see, I don't know if it was far or around a corner or over the hill, but it was enough of a supernatural thing that Nathaniel has his doubts relieved. You knew I was under a tree. You knew Philip talked to me. You knew what kind of tree it was. All of that floods his mind, and out of his mouth comes this. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And I can imagine almost that Jesus was like, huh, wow, that was easy. <laughs> I hope the rest of the ministry goes this swimmingly well. You know? All I had to do was that fig tree thing and you're on board? And this is what Christ answers him. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? That's the miracle? You will see greater things than these. It's like, man, starting today, man, this is going to knock your socks off. That fig tree thing is nothing. See, blind see, lame walk. Storms calmed. You're going to see a lot of stuff. And then he adds, and he said to him, most assuredly, and I want you to be clear about this, he's talking about the context of performing miracles as an evidence of his divinity. Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Why in the world did Jesus talk about that ladder and the angels when he was talking about miracles that Philip would see? I mean, when Nathaniel would see. Well, Philip would see them too. Why did he invoke the ladder reference and the angels? when he was talking about miracles that he was going to see. Let's keep going. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 6. Now when he, in fact, we're going to do the, let's go to Matthew 8. We're going to do, for sake of time, we're going to do the shorter version of this one, okay? Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, starting with verse 5. It's recorded in a couple places, but the, the quicker version with fewer details is in Matthew 5, but some very salient details are in Luke 7. We just don't have time for it. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, starting with verse 5. This is the story of the centurion who had a sick servant that Jesus healed. Now, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. 
By the way, the salient detail you'll find in Luke is that he actually wasn't there. He sent someone to say that. He said this through a messenger. Matthew cuts that out and says, anyway, this guy said to this guy. But that's, given our theme, that's a pretty important detail, okay? But let's just go quickly here. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, and notice there's two reasons for refusing Jesus' offer of coming to his house. Number one, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. What did Jesus mean? I mean, what, what, was, what was this guy talking about? Did he mean that your word has magical properties that can do the healing from long distance? I tend to believe that God's word has power in it. If he wants to speak a world into existence, of course he can do that. I'm not limiting the power of God's word. But is that what this guy is talking about here? No. How do we know that? Because he explains himself. Keep reading. By the way, that's the, that's the resolution of most every difficult Bible problem. Just keep reading. Okay? And here's his explanation, verse 9. For I also am a man under what? Authority. He's like, I've got bosses over me. And, he goes on to say, having soldiers under me. He's he's just talking about a chain of command, is he not? I'm under authority, and there's people that listen to my authority. Goes on. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He says, Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. You have people who do that kind of thing for you. What I'm asking is well below your pay grade. And it's not often that you see Jesus astonished. You see stuff that Jesus says astonish other people. But very rarely do you see Jesus taken aback. But watch this. When Jesus heard it, he, what's that word? Marveled. It's like, whoa. And said to those who followed, he said, did you ever hear this? Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. If I was in Israel, it'd be like, yes, you have to come. This guy's like, first of all, I'm not worthy. I haven't found that in Israel. And second of all, I know how you work. You don't have to come. You have people who do that for you. Just send one of them. She's like, wow, this guy gets it. Now, commenting on this, we read in the Desire of Ages, page 316. I hope you're note takers. DA 316. She puts, uh, goes into first person from the perspective of the centurion saying, as I represent the power of Rome and my soldiers recognize my authority as supreme, so does thou represent the power of the infinite God. That chain of command under authority. And all created things obey thy word. Thou canst command the disease to impart and it shall obey thee. So that's one option you have. You could just speak it and it would work, right? But he goes on to say, Thou canst summon thy heavenly messengers, and they shall impart healing virtue. Speak but the word, and my servant shall be healed. Who are the messengers, who are the servants that this guy knew Jesus had under his command? Angels. Because are they not all all ministering spirits? Review and Herald. Now listen to this one very carefully. Review and Herald, January 21, 1873. You find a, 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 a version of this in the Desire of Ages, but there's one key word that is missing in the Desire of Ages, and I want you to see it in the original source. Can you 
Yes, RH Jan 21-1873. Okay. The angels of God are ever moving up and down from earth to heaven and from heaven to earth. All the miracles of Christ performed for the afflicted and suffering were by the power of God through the ministration of angels. All of them. Next, she continues, all the blessings from God to man are through the ministration of holy angels. The purpose of this very first seminar is to lay the framework of how heaven works. That there's a chain of command, there's organization, and most things that God does, he doesn't do personally. He does through an agent. Now, that doesn't make any less God's work, right? I built a house, but I didn't, you know, hammer the saw or anything like that. I paid somebody. And then he paid some other people. He didn't do it either. He hired some other people. By the end of the day, some 16-year-old kid built my house, and I never met him. <laughs> that's fine. But at the end of the day, I, I built the house. It was my authority. It was my money. I chose the spot. I, I hired the whatever. It's my house, but I didn't touch a thing. Same thing with the miracles of Christ. Fascinating. Now, Christ took that same heavenly model of his commanding of the angel host, and he brought it here on earth. In his ministry, he exemplified this among his disciples. This is where we're transitioning next, how Christ works through people. Let's go through John chapter 11. John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. This is the one, of course, where Jesus stayed away on purpose, and he said he was glad that Lazarus died. I know it's really messed up sounding, but it's right there in the Bible. Look. Verse 14, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am what? Glad. Is it glad for Lazarus' sake? No. It's glad for whose sake? For your sake. That I was not there. It's good that I stayed away from this one. Now, at this point, do they believe that Jesus can do the fig tree kind of miracle? Sure. Do they believe he can change water into wine, walk on the water? Do they believe he can make sick people well? Yes. But what about raising the dead? And I mean the really dead. The let it go for a while, dead, dead. At least in their mind, that's how it works, right? Christ says, this is, this is an opportunity for you to learn a lesson. It's not good for Lazarus, but it's not going to end in death, so he'll get over it. But you need to learn this. So they had something to learn here. Now, as it goes on, we'll, we'll, Jesus encounters the sisters coming toward him, and I want you to notice both of their identically worded refrains as they see Jesus, their lamentation upon receiving Christ come. Look at verse 20. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have what? Died. Does she believe Jesus could heal Lazarus? Yes. Does she believe Jesus can raise Lazarus? Mm. It's another step up. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Obviously God can raise the dead, but you... mm. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. This encoded symbolic language, he's about to wake up. She said to him, 
I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, you know, when God does it. But we don't have him here, we just have you. And thus Jesus says to her, and sometimes I think we think of these famous statements of Jesus as they're always kind of in a pasture and they're kind of placid and vacant. I think he's genuinely frustrated. Look at he said, Martha, uh, 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 Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, shall live. I, I, I can't make language any plainer. Stop trying to spiritualize it away. He was dead and I'm going to wake him up. Let's go over to Mary. Verse 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you think it's possible that these ladies talk to each other? had the same frustration with Jesus, like, I thought he loved him. I thought as soon as that messenger, he would come. When the centurion heard Jesus offer, I'll come to you, he said, don't worry about it. Now they're like, Jesus has to get here. And Jesus purposely stays away. Lets him die and says, I'm glad it happened. This is a teaching moment. So apparently it's not just teaching for the disciples. It's also for Martha and Mary, and I'm guessing everybody else in the household, the mourners, whatnot, the stage is big. She says the exact same thing. Everybody, and this is the point of all this, everybody thinks Jesus is strong and powerful, but not strong enough or powerful enough. You can take care of sick, but dead is a whole other class of thing. Everybody's doubting his strength, his power, his ability is the context of this. All right now. Which brings us to this point. Verse 38. Everybody's expecting Jesus to fail and thinks he's weak. And Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now again, what is everyone doubting? His strength, his power, his ability to do what needs to get done. And the very first thing he encounters is a large obstacle. A stone, right? And if Jesus wants to demonstrate his divine authority, his divine power, he can vaporize, obliterate that stone. But he stands there with everyone watching and he says, can, can somebody get the, there's a big rock, it's just, can somebody get the thing? Super awkward moment. <laughs> and thus they start to protest, right? Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he's been dead four days. Let's, don't, you don't have to. We forgive you for being late. <laughs> Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? I'm still going to do a thing, but move the rock. So he prays to his father. And verse 43, now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Does God delegate the Lazarus part to anybody else? No. That one he does directly. Right? But watch this. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. 
And Jesus said to him, them, loose him and let him go. Now the pictures I've always thought about is that you, you always see like maybe some grave clothes on him, but it's kind of, he comes out of the tomb, there's this great light and stuff. But the Bible specifically says he was bound, and it lists all the body parts that were tied up, which were hands and feet and his face. Help me think of logistics. How do you get out of the tomb? Feeling with what? Your hands are tied down. (laughs) You're starting to think, what are my options for getting out of this tomb? Well, you could hop. I'd love it if the Bible says and he hopped out of the tomb. I mean, you could kind of do a shimmy kind of a side thing or you could do the least dignified of all, you know, just kind of (laughs) roll out the tomb. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Why didn't Jesus, if you're going to raise the dead, go the extra step, you know, and make the whole thing look smooth? Was that? I think it's a fine answer. I think it's wrong, but it's a good one. I like good wrong answers, so that's a good one. Okay, now I want you to show you this. Desire of Ages 535. Christ could have commanded the stone to remove, and it would have obeyed his voice. He has that power. He can move and obliterate stones. No problem. He could have bidden the angels, right? Because that's his other modus operandi. He doesn't do it himself. He sends angels. He could have bidden his angels, who were close by his side, to do this. The angels were ready to go and obey his command, but he doesn't summon them this time either. At his bidding, invisible hands would have moved the stone. But it was to be taken away by human hands. Thus, Christ would show that humanity is to cooperate with divinity. And here, and then my little notes, if you ever get them in your hands, it's italicized. That's my adding, but this is the important point. What human power can do, divine power is not summoned to do. Do you get that? What human power can do, divine power is not summoned to do. What you can do, God won't. Desire of Ages 535. What human power can do, divine power is not summoned to do. God does not dispense with man's aid. He strengthens him, cooperating with him as he uses the powers and capabilities given him. He'll strengthen you to use your power, but he wants you to be the active agent that does the thing. Don't just watch work. We're coming in on this training center churches concept. I want you to see how God operates in heaven, and I want you to see how Christ operated here on earth, and it should be a lesson for how the church operates today. Let's go to one more. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Beginning with verse 38. This is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And you know the story leading up to it. They, 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 there's a great big day. No one brought food. And they were discussing, what do we do with this great crowd of people? And the, the first options were send them away, have them go to town and buy food, yada, yada. And Jesus says, no, no, this is another teaching opportunity. Okay. In verse 37, but he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. 
And they said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Sure, give us a couple million dollars, no problem. It's almost sarcastic. Sassing Jesus. It's probably not the right thing to do. But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? By the way, notice how intensely practical this is. It's like, before you get the big picture of how we're going to feed everyone, start with what do you got? Go find out what your actual situation is. And then come back and report. We're going to use this as a project. Go and see. Which took a while. There's 5,000 people. They cobbled together all the food they could come up with. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Okay, that's what we're working with now. Five and two fish. Then, and watch every step of this very carefully. Then he commanded them. Who's the them? Is, it, is he talking to the crowd or the disciples? The disciples. Them to make them. Now, who's that them? The crowd. Jesus did not stand up and say, everyone listen. One, two, three, sit. Could he have done that? Sure. Would it have taken divine power to do that? No. Just open his human mouth and say to everyone, sit down. And I'm guessing everyone would have obeyed the call of Jesus. But he doesn't do that. He says, all right, disciples, next part of the project. Make them sit down. So do they say, all right, we got this. Everybody sit. (laughs) No. Why not? Because sitting down was not the only objective. Getting people to sit is no problem. Getting them to sit in order, ooh. Watch this now. Make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. Okay, so we've got to divide them up into groups. So they sat down, and notice the language, in ranks. Now, what picture comes in your mind when you think of ranks of people? You think of, like, an army, you think of organization, you think of either lines or clusters or some sort of structure that this will lead to this will lead to this. Your ranks, you're lined up in a row. Make them sit down in ranks, okay? Make them sit down in ranks. And he's specific about this. In hundreds and in fifties. I want some large groups, some smaller groups, but 5,000 plus women and children sending them down in ranks in groups of 50 and 100. This is not, hey, sit down real quick. This is a project. And then, verse 41, and when he had taken the five loaves and the two bread, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to whom? His disciples. To set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. Why did he have them sit down in groups and ranks and hundreds and fifties? Why was it this organized? Yeah. Yeah. Because think about that. Did, and maybe this is the picture you have, but you have this kind of mess of a people out there, and the disciples are just wandering through the crowd handing out food. Is that how it worked? No. It was organized. Very detailed organization. Now, We're going to start getting the spirit of prophecy in here. And in this study, we're going to go right up to the edge of speculation and peer off over the ledge, but we're not going to jump. Okay? Going to come close. We're not doing it. Review and Herald, March 29. RH, March 29, 1898. 
When Christ fed the multitude, each one of the disciples was given a part in the work. Christ asked his father's blessing on the food, and it came. But the work was not left to one man. Each one was given something to do. So the disciples didn't just watch Jesus do ministry. Jesus was a living, breathing, training center for Christian workers. He was always teaching. In fact, he did far more teaching than he did preaching. Nothing wrong with preaching. I'm a preacher. But Jesus was a teacher. Each one was given something to do. So it is now. God has given to every man his work, and he expects all to do their part faithfully. Now, Desire of Ages, 369, DA 369. In Christ's act of supplying the temporal necessities of a hungry multitude is wrapped up a deep spiritual lesson for all his workers. And she outlines the chain of command, and I want you to notice the part that we have not yet talked about. Christ received from the Father. He imparted to the disciples. They imparted to the multitude, and we would assume it would stop there. Watch this, one more step. And the people to one another. It is my contention after this study that there were many, many, I'd say the vast majority of those 5,000 plus who never personally came in contact with Jesus or his disciples and yet they were filled just as much as anybody else. Which brings me to my question. Who fed the 5,000? Well, it's kind of a loaded question. Obviously, the miracle was provided by God through his manservant, Jesus Christ. And he had leaders called disciples. And they organized the work. And then they distributed to the leaders of those groups. And by the way, do you think each group had a leader with it? Probably. It starts this way, it goes this way. They had organized the thing. And by the end of the day, each one fed the other one. This is how God wants his work to do. He doesn't want any watchers in the church. He wants a church full of workers in every aspect. Now, here's where we're going to go to the speculation part. We're just going to have fun. We're not going to let it absorb our time. But it's a really interesting study, so I thought I'd share it with you. This is GYC. We want that extra thing, don't we? Here we go. Education, page 286. Consider... The part acted by the disciples in the Savior's miracle for the feeding of the 5,000, uh, feeding of the multitude. The food multiplied in the hands of Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Where did the actual duplication take place? Was it in the basket? And Christ reached in. Oh, there's another one. So only he can see the miracle. You know? Oh, there's another one. There's another one. And he does this 100,000 times that day. Maybe. Clearly, there was multiplication happening in the hands of Christ. The food multiplied in the hands of Christ, but the disciples received the loaves and gave to the waiting throng. So you say, well, that's case closed right there. The multiplication happened in the hands of Jesus, and they just received and distributed. Manuscript release, MR, or 21MR, volume 21. 21MR, page 138. Jesus gave thanks and distributed the bread, and lo, the loaves multiplied in their distribution. The fish increased in the hands of those who distributed them, and the fragments were gathered up 
after 5,000 had been satisfied. So apparently there's multiplication in the hands of Christ, but he gives it to them, and it continued to multiply as they gave it out. Review and Herald, January 18, 1912. R.H. January 18, 1912. That little morsel of food, which with Christ's blessing upon it, multiplied in the hands of the disciples until that which remained after all were satisfied was greater than the original supply. By the way, I believe there's a very deep spiritual lesson as to why, why would he make extra? Why not exactly enough for only those who are going to take the food? We can talk about that some other time. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 263. This is the last one in our Feeding of the 5,000. No doubt many remarks were made as to the impossibility of satisfying the 5,000 hungry men, besides women and children, from that scanty store. But Jesus gave thanks and placed the food in the hands of the disciples to be distributed. They gave to the multitude the food increasing in their hands. Now the difficulty here is we have they and them applied to two different groups, and we're not sure which one it is. Is it the group of the disciples, or is it the group of the multitude? And when the multitude had been fed, the disciples themselves sat down and ate with Christ of the heaven-imparted store. This is a precious lesson for every one of Christ's followers. So I'm not going to speculate. Did it multiply in the hands of the people who received it and the leaders they are distributed to? I don't know. But we do know is that multiplication happened. It definitely happened in Christ's hands. It also happened in the disciples' hands, and they gave it to the multitude, and it just kept going. That's as far to the speculation I want to go. But it definitely puts a different picture in the feeding of 5,000, at least for me, than just sit down and just start throwing out bread willy-nilly. It's not like that. It's not like that at all. Acts chapter 4. What lessons did the disciples learn? Because remember, Jesus was training his disciples through all this, right? With the Lazarus thing. He said, I'm glad for your sakes. I have to teach you some things about who I am and how I work. Okay? When it comes to the feeding of the 5,000, this is a teaching moment for the disciples. You guys have to learn this. Why did they have to learn this? Because Jesus was going to leave, yes? Now they're going to be running the works of the ministry. Jesus said, the works that I do, you're going to do. And even greater than these, you're going to have a farther influence than I have. I was right here. You're going to go around the world. You better learn how I work now so that when I leave, you're ready to go. Acts chapter 4. Watch this. Right after the famous passage about praying for boldness in the house where they were saying was shaken, we look at verse 33. Acts chapter 4. Watch what happens. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who, uh, who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the what? The apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. You get the picture. This is very early in the book of Acts. This multiplication is happening. People are convicted of sin. They want to give to the cause, and they sell their possessions. They bring the money. They bring the resources. And they put it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles pick it up and start distributing it. Now, I'm not saying they did anything wrong, but we know that they changed tack the next time that happened. Turn your Bible over to Acts chapter 6. Verse 1, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. 
So the church was growing. This is, what, this is how you know it has actually become a church now. So people are complaining. <laughs> because their widows were neglected in the what? Daily distribution. Who has been distributing all the resources up to this point? The apostles. We have it right there in the scripture. They brought stuff, distributed, okay. And as soon as, by the way, if you notice, as soon as you do something, that's what you do for the rest of your life. The first day you get married, whatever side of the bed you pick, that's yours for the rest of your life. <laughs> whatever pew you sit on, that's where you're going to sit. Whatever structure, whatever form, whatever thing is instituted initially, it has inertia for eternity. Some of the problems in our churches and schools and whatnot, the, the only solution I can humanly see is the building of a time machine. Go back and don't do it in the first place. Because right? once it gets started, that's just what we do. It's hard to get that out of people's mind. They're bringing stuff to the apostles, because that's what we did last time, right? And that's what you do. You're the apostles. Your job is to distribute to us. This is a little tag for our next seminar. What is the role of an apostle? What is the role of the pastor in the Seventh Avenue Church? Well, we give of the resources, and you distribute and take care of us. That's what we did last time. And I have a feeling, this is my little hunch, that that day with the 5,000 came back to their mind. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We are starting down a very dangerous path here. If we do this, we're going to be the people who just do this. And we're never again going to do that. Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples. Notice that Christ was the only Christ, and he had 12 disciples. Now the apostles have taken that role, and they have disciples. They say, you know what we need to do here? Put you to work. The 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Is there anything wrong with serving tables? Is he denigrating this role? No. It's just not, that's not my job. That's your job. In fact, it's not, it's not just desirable that we would be hindered it would also hurt you. If we just keep doling out and doling out and solving all your problems for it. Again, we're going to come back to that tomorrow. Uh, well, not tomorrow, like in a few minutes. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you. That's a very key thing. Seek out, but don't go hire someone from outside. Get someone from inside. You take care of this problem. Someone from among you, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And here's where the little miracle of that one comes in. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And he goes on to list who they chose. And of course, Stephen is the most notable among them, at least in a church history, we understand. Then in verse 7, then the word of God did what? Spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That if they did not quickly set up an organizational structure that got the membership, the discipleship involved in the ministry, the ministry would be hindered. We have to do this. And the result, the word of God spread. They got a structure that worked. Acts of the Apostles, page 91. 
The organization of the church at Jerusalem was to serve as a model for the organization of churches in every other place where messengers of truth should win converts to the gospel. She continues. Later in the history of the early church, when in various parts of the world many groups of believers had been formed into churches, the organization of the church was further perfected so that order and harmonious action might be maintained. Every member was exhorted to act well his part. Each was to make a wise use of the talents entrusted to him. Every member was supposed to be doing ministry work. That's what Christ did in heaven with the angels. They're all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. That's what he did with his disciples as he trained them to set up the early church, and that early church should be a model for the last day church. Which brings me back to Matthew chapter 6. We're almost done here, I promise. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Matthew chapter 6. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now notice what's the next thing you pray for. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean, that his work would be done, his will would be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven? Does that mean as in the sense of at the same time that it's going on there, it should go on here? I don't think he's talking about time. I think he's talking about the manner of the work itself. The same way that your kingdom operates there, Lord, it was the prayer of Jesus' heart. Lord, let's see that on earth too. On earth as it is in heaven. And I'll finish with these two statements. Acts of the Apostles, page 9. The purpose of the church. The church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. It was organized for service. And its mission is to carry the gospel to the world. From the beginning, it has been God's plan that through his church shall be reflected to the world his fullness and his sufficiency. The members of the church... Not the leaders of the church, not the pastors of the church, the members of the church, those whom he has called out of darkness into his marvelous light are to show forth his glory. The church is God's appointed agency. It was organized for service with a mission to carry the gospel to the world, and the members are supposed to be showing the glory of God. And going back to the Lord's Prayer, historical sketches, historical sketches, page 287. How can you who repeat the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, sit at ease in your homes without helping carry the torch of truth to others? That's kind of a rebuke, is it not? How dare you pray, Lord, let your work be done here like it is there while you're not doing anything. How can you lift up your hands before God and ask his blessing upon yourselves and your families when you are doing so little to help others? The heavenly messengers are doing their work. Who are those heavenly messengers? The angels, right? They're doing their work. But what are we doing? Brothers and sisters, God calls upon you to redeem the time. 
burden of this first message today is to show how God works in heaven and how Christ, when he came to earth, set up a replication of that same model of industry, the same operating principles of his kingdom there he tried to implant here on the earth, and the disciples took those in and built a church on it. And the Lord's messenger in the last day says, that heavenly that was brought to earth needs to be continued if we're ever going to finish the work and return to heaven. Did it make sense so far? Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who communicates your will. You gave us a book. Lord, let us, to, let us read it and understand it. And not just understand it, but put it in practice. Help us to be not only hearers, but doers of the word. Help us to see how you work. And in that economy, Lord, give us our place, our sphere of responsibility. Make us faithful and useful for you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.